Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. This is an episode that I have been excited about basically since I started the show. My guest today is Lorraine Wild, the great designer, writer, and teacher. She runs Green Dragon Office, a Los Angeles design studio that focuses on book design for museums, galleries, and educational institutions. She's been on the faculty of the graphic design program at CalArts since 1985 and served as the director of that program from 85 to 1991. Lorraine's also written some of my very favorite essays on design and design history. She has a deep interest in teaching and thinking about how we talk about design history and teaches a famous CalArts class on on design history that's come up on the show many times. In this wide-ranging conversation, Lorraine and I talk about that intersection of design and writing and teaching in her practice. We talk about her time studying at both Cranbrook and Yale and working for the Vignellis in between uh, those two educational experiences and what that was like. We also talk about design history, how modernism became the dominant aesthetic in the 70s and why we're still rehashing in many ways this modernism postmodern debate. Lorraine holds a unique position in the design field and has seen it from a lot of different angles, and so it was really nice to hear her perspective on all of this. Lorraine obviously was on my list as a dream guest since I started this show, and I have a confession to make. We actually recorded an episode all the way back in March 2018. It was a really great conversation talking about a lot of these things that I'm interested in, and due to technical issues, I lost the recording. In the history of the show, that conversation with Lorraine is the only conversation that I ever lost. And I have been kicking myself over it for years since and wanting to try it again. And so finally, it felt like enough time has passed uh, that we could try it again. And I am so glad we did because I think the conversation that we had now was more thoughtful and interesting and goes in different directions that that original conversation I just don't think did. And so this was such a great conversation. I'm so happy with how it turned out. If you like this show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. All of those tiers give you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive bonus interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Service, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Lorraine Wild. I want to begin this conversation in a, in a kind of weird way by actually quoting something that you said in another interview. <laughs> I, um, I, I was... Uh-oh thinking about you and thinking about this conversation and I reread uh, Louise Sandhouse's interview with you in iMagazine in 2000. So it's like 21 years ago. And her first question was, people know you as an educator, writer, historian, and practitioner, probably in that order. Is that how you see yourself? And you respond, I think of myself as a designer first, and I always have. I'm a designer who teaches and writes. And that really resonated with me for two reasons. One, um, I've known, I've been following your work for years and for a very long time knew you as a writer and a teacher before I had ever seen any of your, your design work. Uh, and then I feel the same way in my own work in that in many ways I'm known as a podcaster or a teacher or a writer, but I still identify as a designer first also. And I'm not totally sure why I do that. And I was wondering... A, if you feel the same way 20 years later, if you're still consider yourself a designer who teaches and writes, and why why designer still comes first for you? Um, well, uh, that's um, uh, that's really an interesting question because um, the like one simple and obvious response is to say because it takes more time. You know that <laughs> right. that if I look at how I how I divide my time up, I feel like, you know, the work of being a designer, um, it really fills it. And the, the actual work that I do, uh, as a book designer is very time consuming. And so, Mm. um, there's a kind of, you know, a very specific heavy time commitment to actually making, um, the projects happen along with my colleagues. And so, so there's just that simple equation, but, 
The other thing is I'm fully aware of the, you know, even as a book designer, and I was attracted to book design because it wasn't ephemeral, but there's still an ephemerality to, um, to our work as designers. So I'm fully aware that the writing and the teaching in some ways is the stuff that builds a legacy. Um, mm. You know, I've only met a couple people in my life who've said to me, oh, I actually collect books that you design. And actually, they're, they've mm. been not uh, other designers. They've been, you know, book collector types. Huh. Um, whereas, whereas, obviously, other designers know me from my, you know, sporadic and cranky writing. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a weird thing. I do, though, all of my, even my writing and teaching has always been oriented towards the idea of, of this is thought and this is cultural work through the eyes of of a maker, you Mm. know, and that I've been very focused on that. Uh, yeah, that it makes a lot of sense, and and I want to come back to to you saying that your writing is cranky in a bit, but it is. I I hadn't thought about it like that. I I have read things you've written hundreds of times, like like, like your essay "Castles Made of Sand." I've probably read fifty times <laughs> at this point, um, and and so there is that cer- certain sort of kind of legacy to to the writing and the teaching that you know, maybe the design has, has less. I want to, I mean, the other thing I was thinking about is that you've studied design intensively, perhaps in a way that you haven't with, uh, you know, writing and teaching, not to say that, that you are not, you know, you haven't studied them, but your degrees are in design and you, you, you're one of the few people who have a BFA from Cranbrook. Um, and you got that in the in the mid '70s, right when the McCoys started. And I'm I'm on the record of being a fan of kind of that era of Cranbrook, kind of right before Cranbrook became Cranbrook as, as we know it. Uh, what was that like uh, being there at that time? What kind of you know what what did it mean to kind of be a designer at that time at Cranbrook? You know, the the McCoys. And, and I jokingly say I went to school of children because I think they were both in their 20s when, um, when yeah. I was a student there. Um, the McCoys had um, this very fascinating approach to design where they made both the kind of practice and the culture of it seem utterly intertwined and accessible and um, open to the students. Like there's this early poster that they did for their program where it's a big collage and the collage is all things from mid 19th to 20th century design history. And then they list alongside all the topics that they're interested in. They were kind of encyclopedic in their um, in their uh, interests in design, and they. But it was not like an extremely, you know. It, what, again, it was an art school. It was not. It was a studio practice, studio based practice, mm-hmm. not an academic practice. So they weren't teaching us to be historians. They were teaching us to be informed as makers about history. And, um, and again, seeing it as a continuum that you are part of, which is something I really have always maintained in my own history teaching that I'm not teaching you the like works of unattainable masters. I'm teaching about a continuum that I'm expecting the students are entering Mm -hmm. at their own point. And that, that's something I really brought from them. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, Andrew Blauvelt, uh, organized an exhibition a few years ago at the Walker called Hippie Modernism. Right. And hippie modernism was, uh, hippie moderness was a term that I had invented to describe the McCoys. Oh, wow. I didn't it's, know that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Andrew acknowledges it in the book. I mean, it came out of us both. I think we were invited to a sort of um, an event in the honor of the McCoys retiring from Cranbrook. And I think I used it to describe them at that time. And of course, what that was about was 
they were both, you know, they were basically both trained as an industrial designers mm -hmm. and they were like fully part of this modernist continuum, except that they were also, you know, uh, people who were uh, adults in the late sixties or young adults. Right, in the late right. 60s. So they had this orient, this very utopian feminist, uh, you know, politically activist, um, you know, socially critical stance um, that they brought alongside it. And it really, again, it made um, design feel like you could use it uh, mm. for, um, for something way beyond the simple kind of trade, you know, advertising and publishing, uh, you know, uh, uses that graphic designers generally devoted to. So they really didn't approach it. There was nothing trade about the training um, right. the, at the McCoys. And, and I, you know, being, a, being young, I had actually had the advantage of already working as a sort of assistant in a design office in Detroit mm. that actually was the office where Ed Fellow worked and okay. where Kathy had worked before. And so I knew kind of you know, I knew how to do it. I didn't need anybody to show me how to make a mechanical. So, you know, what passed for technical training I already had. So I was totally ready for, you know, the kind, the ways that the McCoys could open up the subject. I realize this question, you know, with hindsight might be hard to kind of answer honestly, but were you aware of the unusualness of of that and the way that they were interested in design and, and talked about design and and the reason i ask that is because you know this is really before like i said cranbrook kind of became a brand in graphic design this is before the sort of modernism postmodernism debates all of this were the were looking back can you see the seeds of that you know starting at your time there and were you kind of aware of that at the time well, um, actually, I would say that I did not fully, I mean, there were things about Cranbrook that I completely appreciated while I was there. However, I would say it wasn't until I got to Yale that I recognized how unusual my, okay. um, my education at Cranbrook had been. And, you know, I also had like fellow students of mine at Cranbrook were really like, for instance, Meredith Davis was getting her MFA <laughs> right. while I was there. Patrick Whitney, you know, who went mm. on to go to the Institute of Design at IIT. You know, these were really people whose interests, like the the department, could at that time, um, well, actually, it always could uh, be a home for a very wide variety of opinions and translations. Mm -hmm of what design practice would be. Again, that's what the McCoys had this interesting, very unpolemical openness to design culture. Um, so, you know, the thing that Cranbrook became uh, known for later, which was a sort of formal expression mm -hmm. of the um, ideas coming out of postmodernism and literary theory that that comes a little bit well later in the 70s um and definitely i was watching it from afar while i was in graduate school in new haven um so yeah that that cranbrook was a bit later i was at a point where um the uh i mean i was thinking about projects i did while i was a student there and one of them was um, that Kathy had managed to get, in fact, I believe it was Kathy McCoy and Meredith Davis had hmm. managed to get a grant from the state of Michigan to uh, both do, I think, a middle school curriculum. Yes. Meredith told me about this, actually. Yes. So they, she was working on that. And then another piece of it was a publication or a series of publications about sort of design in Michigan. Like it was a real like state council <laughs> of the arts type project. And um, I actually took it upon myself to come up with um, a long essay that looked at say a dozen points in Michigan design history that were, um, you know, worth writing about. And I had this 
I still remember vividly this crappy Ford Falcon that I had like <laughs> driving all over the state to different archives. And the first one that I talked about was the birch, the birch bark canoe. And, um, you know, about essentially the indigenous, if Michigan is a place where transportation technologies um, always, you know, flourished or, or rather its location because of being where, you know, water and trees were, was, was an important, you know, nexus, um, you know, that you had to start with the most efficient way of getting around, you know, in, hmm. uh, in very early times. And so, you know, again, even that didn't seem, you know, uh, I mean, again, I was not an academic historian by any stretch of the imagination. I would even call this maybe more akin to design journalism. Mm. But, um, but yeah, we produced a publication um, and that would just be seen as my work that semester, you know, because there aren't classes at Cranbrook, right? right? So you just right. invented projects for yourself. Um, I was also fascinated by these weird genre of modern houses that you could find all over Detroit and, mm. you know, we're kind of creating a, an archive of those. So that, again, my interest in graphic design as a vehicle to create um, actually archives about history, you know, and write to them was really um, established very early by that work at Cranbrook. This is so interesting to me for many reasons, and, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about this this kind of relationship between sort of the history, the theory, the the conversation, design as culture versus design as you know product artifact, in in kind of where that came from for you. And it sounds like it was there right from the beginning. Is that something? Did you have an interest in that before Cranbrook, or is that something that really developed during your time there? I, you know, I was a kid in high school who, although I was known as, you know, one of the art kids, it was never divorced from writing. Mm. Um, you know, I, for instance, I, you know, started a school poetry magazine where I went to all my friends and collected their writings and then designed <laughs> it or I worked on wow. the school paper, but I also laid it out. So I never, right. you know, I, I was fully aware that I had this absolutely split personality um, in terms of my interest in the visual world. And I happened to have really good writing teachers in my high school who very, even as early as 10th grade, were teaching us to read criticism of literature, you know, wow. like a classic thing would be, you know, reading Huckleberry Finn and then reading the critiques of that, you know, or Leslie Fielder, Right. writing on American mythology, you know, so that issue of, oh, okay, creative work goes out in the world and then it keeps having a life is something that I understood really early. And, um, and that's, I think what I, what I carried, what I already had when I got to Cranbrook, undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. And also <laughs> I, a friend, this is like, like you, you meet a drug dealer or something. A friend of mine who was like a year older and who went to school on the East Coast, who I'd known from high school, called me up and said, have you ever read this book by Rainer Banner? <laughs> I think you'd like it. And it was theory and design in the first machine age. And yes. I still remember sitting in my parents' backyard at age 19 reading that and it freaking blew my mind. And I, I realized now that was like my, you know, road to Damascus. It's like, yeah. oh, and what was it? So it wasn't only this history of architecture, but it was his connecting it to art practice, like, future, right. you know, futurism and Dada and bringing that in. And then again, the time and the distance. And then when I recognized that he also taught, he wrote all the time about contemporary design, then it all made sense to me that, of course, um, of course, I didn't, I don't know, I, maybe I thought he was also a designer. I didn't realize he was just a writer. Um, right. Just a writer. <laughs> but, um, you know. <laughs> I mean, did I, I, it's interesting that you say that, though, because as you were telling the story, 
I was wondering if you were seeing, you know, this writing, the criticism, even, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, your, your high school poetry magazine was, were the projects that, that you were doing at Cranbrook was the writing, the, the history, the being in archives. Did you see that as a, a supplement to the design work? Was that changing how you were thinking about being a designer or did that feel like a separate thing? Actually, no, it felt, it felt one in the same to me, but I also wasn't clear myself. Mm. Actually, when I left Cranbrook, I remember thinking about um, like, what was I going to do next? Well, my plan all along had been to go to New York. Like that was the plan. And so, you know, I get to New York, long story, end up working for Vignelli, Massimo mm-hmm. Vignelli. And um, I, a, a question that had started kind of bugging me at Cranbrook was literally amplified when I got to New York in the kind <laughs> of straight on modernist environment mm-hmm. that I was functioning in, which was how did this get here? Now, to, to explain what I couldn't figure out, the question that bugged me at Cranbrook um, was um, how, and you know, the mid the mid '70s was kind of this interesting period where suddenly a lot of new writing about the Russian constructivists mm. was was being translated. You know, so there was like a, a book by a guy named Simon Boyko, I think, about like new graphic design in revolutionary mm, Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there was actually a publisher in Ann Arbor connected to the university that dealt in Russian literature, but would also reproduce pages out of, you know, constructivist poetry mm. magazines. So there was all this interest. And then, then, of course, if you looked at the classic, like Herbert Spencer, or even Joseph Mueller Brockman's, you know, history of graphic mm-hmm. design, you saw this trajectory of like, okay, there's the avant-garde 20s, or at least a, a kind of very loose understanding of it at that point. And then, you know, the Bauhaus, and then you have Swiss design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember going to Kathy McCoy and saying to her, well, what happened here? Like, well, <laughs> what happens in the middle? And her, right, right. and her response was only tacky stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've laughed about that. I love that. And so I started getting interested in, in like, okay, well, what was that tacky stuff? Like, I didn't get, I didn't get how the, um, the, uh, the DNA of, American con- contemporary graphic design was deemed to be a European lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just, I just wanted to understand how, how things got there. And when I got to the Vignelli office, um, I didn't have many conversations about Mas- with Massimo about design history, but one of them, I remember asking him, well, like, who do you like? <laughs> <laughs> And he said, oh, well, I like, you know, Paul Rand and Lester Beale. And right. so then I thought, because honestly, like neither Paul Rand nor Lester Beale were even looked at at Cranbrook. And so I thought, well, okay, who are they? And so I started this thing while I was working at Massimo's office where on Saturdays I would go to the New York Public Library and I would just start digging around. Mm. And... um you know, you I'd go in the reading room and I the card catalog and say, Well, you know, can you give me ten years of Gerbrausch Grafique from <laughs> Berlin? Which of course they had, you know, and then you'd wait an hour and then somebody would come with this giant cart. And I would just look through these things looking for any trace of where the European stuff was being reproduced in things that Americans saw hmm. or you know I was just trying to find it because you know again this is pre-Megs this is pre right pre all of that 
And um, actually, because I worked for Vignelli, I was doing all this work for the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, and particularly working on a tabloid paper called Skyline. Right, um, yeah. And the two editors of it were the late, great Craig Owens, an incredible mm-hmm. you know, writer and art critic, and another guy named Andrew McNair. And I remember kind of, you know, like the kid in the office telling them what I was doing, um, this little project on the side. And they said, you know, you could get a de- master's degree for that kind of work. And then I thought, well, okay, well, where do I do that? And I couldn't, um, as a Detroit working class kid, I knew I could go to Great Britain maybe and get a design history degree, but I couldn't imagine how I could do it. Like there was mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. I, I had no basis to imagine studying. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. I totally yeah. get that. And so then when it, it finally dawned on me that all the people I was interested in their work from like late 30s and 40s were actually still teaching at Yale. So I thought, yeah. well, I'll just go there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have, okay. I have a couple questions. I have a couple questions about this. Um, cause, cause I want to talk to you about Yale for a second, but I do want to talk about Vignelli just for a second Um, because I think it's interesting that you were sort of questioning a lot of this and really kind of digging into this history and I know you said you didn't talk to him about history too much but I'm I'm wondering what that was like to work in that office that now you know is seen as a you know very kind of strict Swiss modernist you know philosophy true believer um did you get into that? I mean, it sounds like you were always kind of skeptical. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, any like, not personal tensions, but kind of work tension of kind of working in this mode in this office that is known for this, but kind of, you know, questioning it on the side and spending your Saturdays, you know, kind of digging in the archives to, to figure it out. What was that like? Um, yeah. I could write a book about it. Um, I think you should. I, <laughs> the um, okay. First of all, I were when I worked for Maso, Massimo and Leila, and this was seventy seven and seventy eight. Um, the office was quite small. It was before they became the kind of juggernaut that they became later in the mm. um, like the nineties and the uh, you know it was really just. Uh, Massimo and Layla, uh, an office manager, and there were, I think, there were three of us mm-hmm. in the uh, in the office. And um, one of my colleagues uh, of the three design young you know designers, one was an Italian guy who actually was an accomplished designer, but the Vignellis were helping him get. <laughs> get his uh, bearings in the United States. And the other was uh, a guy who'd gone to University of the Arts in, um, in Philadelphia, mm. who had been totally inculcated into the Swiss style. So mm-hmm. like yeah. he had no problems, whereas I was sitting there wriggling and cringing and going crazy because um, there were so many things that were, um, that seemed not quite right to me because I already had this feeling that, you know, graphic design should be responsive to content situations, et cetera, et cetera. And of all the designers functioning in New York at that time, Massimo had the strongest, um, you know, signature uh, in his work, stronger than anybody. And actually one of the kind of humorous, aspects of working in that office, at least as I observed it, was that pretty much everyone who walked in the door as clients already knew they wanted it, like obviously. So there was no, like what what people think of as research and process didn't exist. (laughs) Like we would, because it was already there. Like pollution was somewhere in the flat files. And, um, you know, and, my job as a young designer would be to take the situation at hand and essentially find the right template um, right. Yeah. for the thing that we were doing. And 
understand the kind of precision with which it had to be implemented. But it wasn't, you know, I didn't, um, I certainly, that was where I suddenly started. I never questioned my training at Cranbrook, but I did see it as like something else. (laughs) That, that, um, That this was... And I also understood that um, other young designers I knew at other offices where they didn't have quite that um, rigid of a formal approach um, did, in fact, um, there was a bit more mm-hmm. of that kind of research melded with um, melded with the um, with the work. But no, I you know. <laughs> I was thinking about when I went to show Massimo my portfolio and I know that he was interested in me because he, I'd gone to Cranbrook and I thought he thought that I would be like an Eames type design. Mm, Oh, right. um, You know, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And actually I think he could, I mean, to be honest, I think Massimo understood whatever vestiges of intelligence there was in my work at that time. (laughs) But I also remember him stopping and I had done a restaurant menu (laughs) that was all in Corinna. And um, that was when I got the speech. He says, you know, Lorraine, you know, you know, we would only use at that time. It was like Helvetica times Garrett, Vaughn and Bedoni. It's like, okay, okay, fine. And so, you know, I essentially had signed on. And in fact, the first project I had to do with uh, in the office was working on a courthouse signage for an architect named Harry Wolf. And the Mm. courthouse signage was in avant-garde. And I felt really mad. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) You you didn't say (laughs) avant-garde. Right. So... I mean, so I guess like the question that I'm interested in, in in that, and that's kind of what I was expecting you to say about that, actually. But I'm, I'm thinking about you then doing this research, you know, on Saturdays and then deciding to go to Yale. I, I'm still curious about sort of your intentions, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, if there was an ambition there. Did you think you were becoming a historian? Was this like I, I guess the question I'm asking is like, why was this so interesting to you? You know, did you feel like there was like something more to this work that you were doing? What what was kind of driving you at this time? Um, pure curiosity. I mm. really don't uh, like. You know, I thought, okay, first of all, I did. I knew when I went to Yale what I wanted to do. And now that I work with grad students, the idea of a grad student walking in with a preordained project is kind of scary. Yeah. And I realize now that I really um, annoyed the faculty yeah. at Yale. I mean, really annoyed them. And by the way, just to clarify, we're talking about pre-Sheila de Brefville. We're ta- talking about right. the old history of... Elvin Eisenman, um, Paul Rand, Bradbury Thompson, Herbert Matter, right? Uh, Chris Pullman, and so um, no, I knew when I walked in that I had every intention of doing this. I knew that I wanted to take um, Vincent Scully's uh, architectural history classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I didn't know what else there was, but I felt, and this is um, you know my only. Well, my critique of my own education was that I had talked my way into Cranbrook at age 19, and I knew that I was missing some stuff. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go to Yale, and I'll take, you know, I'll audit classes till I'm blue in the face, and, and, and I'll do that silly design work. Like, I already <laughs> knew that I was not, well, okay, I shouldn't even say this. I should say that Um, at that young age, I was extremely egotistical. And I thought I knew everything about typography and graphic design that I needed to know. And I really didn't think I was going to, I didn't, um, you know, think I, I wanted to go to Yale to write. And, and yet I knew, I didn't think I would ever get accepted to an art history program. And there really wasn't one. I realized later that I maybe could have been an American studies major and done the same thing um, because in fact, some of my best, one of the best classes I took was in the American studies department. It was a class by a woman named Margareta Lovell in material culture. And it 
and kind of taught all the different ways of looking at, you know, um, a man-made object and how to read things, um, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the point of view of the maker, which for mm-hmm. me was kind of important at that time to understand. Um, you know, I remember my first crit at Yale having, um, I think, Bradbury Thompson saying, I think you're taking too many classes outside. Um, <laughs> When somebody wow. asked me what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but at the same time, I mean, they're t- I, I shouldn't, believe me, I'm fully aware of all my own foibles, but, um, and how I presented at the time as a student, but at the same time, what I was naive about um, was how, much resistance I got from people like Paul Rand or Bradbury Thompson when I went to go write about them. Mm-hmm. And I really do feel that I approached it with a very open heart. Like I wasn't there to mm-hmm. write about their past and excoriate them. I just wanted mm-hmm. to understand what they were looking at, how they thought about their work and all that. And I felt that that would help essentially crack the code of this kind of modernist juggernaut of Mm -hmm. of the late 70s. You know, modernist graphic design in the late 70s is pretty bad, uh, or at least (laughs) in my mind, kind of dead. Yeah. Run by, as I put it in the essay that you um, mentioned, Castles Made of Sand, you know, full of inexplicable conventions and rules that you couldn't make sense of. And so I was trying to get at the bottom of that. I guess I felt I was doing a public service <laughs> to graphic design. I, you know, I just needed to try to understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's, this goes back to to the comment that you said earlier about, you know, your, your writing being cranky, because I don't see your writing as cranky at all. And I think there's actually like a lot of writing a lot of design writing from the 80s and 90s that is very cranky and i don't think yours is is that and i think you know what you just said about approaching it with an open heart you know kind of really like open hearted kind of critique to me has always come through in your writing and it's what i've always admired and liked about your writing is that you can be you can be a very sharp critic but but it does not feel uh you know, cranky or angry or mean in any way. And I think, you know, your writing is very personal. You tell stories, you bring yourself into the writing uh, and, you know, colleagues and like people that, you know, it's like, it's, it's written in this very, um, I've always thought of it as as friendly in a, in a weird way. And I'm, I'm wondering kind of how you developed that voice or that approach or that tone in your writing of kind of being okay, bringing yourself into it, um, approaching it very essayistically and letting it kind of go different places. How, how did that come about? Um, well, my, um, okay. First of all, I have to say that almost every piece I've ever written has been motivated by annoyance. And so that's why I say cranky. I get well, that. So yeah. I'm, I'm negatively inspired. <laughs> and I, I would say as a designer as well, like my, you know, I think my instincts as a maker are like, let's fix this thing. Mm-hmm. No, it's not, it's not about, oh, I have a vision and I'm going to make the world beautiful. It's more a, a repair job. <laughs> so I get that. I totally get um, that. And so that's often the thing that's behind it. But um, if I had to say, okay, my models for, um, uh, so I'm one of those people who had to run to the newsstand to get either Cream Magazine or mm. The Village Voice to read Lester mm. Bangs. Like Lester yeah. Bangs was one of my earliest idols in terms of the way that he wrote and his implication of himself in his writing, like his examination of his own tastes, his own um, point of view. Um, another writer whose work I adored, who 
in the journalism phase, well, actually all along, it was Michael Sorkin. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael Sorkin, you know, it's true. He was kind of, you know, the bad boy of New York architecture critics. He would say things that nobody else would say, but he said them with such humor and such charm. And, you know, I just felt that to write, um, I mean, I have to admit, I read a lot of academic things and I, I'm not a fan of, of heavily academicized writing. I still think the issue of, of voice, if you want anybody else to read you besides another academic, is, is utterly critical. So the other person who's, it was really important to me when, when I was um, doing my um, research for my thesis at Yale was to finally kind of encounter Alvin Lustig's writings, mm. which there had been one compilation that was out of print. I, I have this like worn out Xerox of, of a book that was done. And Alvin Lustig's writing blew my mind because I felt like, okay, like if you want to compare two sort of mid-century writers, designers, like Paul Rand, I feel like he must have done 12 drafts for everything he wrote, you know, because it's like pronouncements from on high. Right, right. Um, you know, and whereas Lustig felt like he was sitting down and telling you how he was experiencing his own thinking processes and his own ideas about design. That's right. And there was a, a more, essentially more of a quality of, less pronouncement and more witnessing. Mm. And when I, you know, I, after I went out, got out of graduate school, um, I ended up at University of Houston. Mm -hmm. And my intention had been, I had kind of thought I would keep doing my historical research, but then I couldn't because there the archives that I needed Mm. to access were back in New York. And I, I just couldn't, I, I lost the narrative when I got to Texas. And, um, but at the same time, I thought, well, wait a minute, there's this other model and it's to write about the now. And mm. that I had seen that, you know, in, um, in the writing of Lustig, that that had really inspired me. I think that, I think that's that's really well said. I think that's a perfect analogy, also, because that's that's exactly how I read your your writing. Is that you are taking us on? Not I don't mean for the. I'm not just saying this to you because because <laughs> we're talking. But what I always like about your writing is we are kind of going through your own thought process, the things you see. It isn't those you know those kind of pronouncements from on high. I'm curious how how doing that writing changed how you approach design do you think you know this kind of deep history research do you think looking around and thinking about it and writing about it did that change your own approach to the design projects that you were doing and are still doing yeah i would say to this day um one of the reasons uh for instance um as a book designer i don't have a um specific style. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For instance, I love, love, love the work of Irma Bohm, but you know an Irma Bohm book when you <laughs> see it, whereas you yeah. don't know one of my books when you right. see it. Uh, you don't right. know till you hit the call font. And that has to do very much with my idea about graphic design, essentially inflecting toward the content, reflecting the time that it's made. Um, you know, I my interest in design history made me incredibly critical of many books uh, that are about, uh, you know, that use historical styles, but in a kind of cartoonish or caricature way. Mm-hmm. Like, again, I wanted to design in the present, but acknowledge history. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, a lot of I do. Well, now I work on a lot of museum exhibition catalogs and, um, you know, I often, along with um, my Green Dragon office colleagues, um, we bring research to the work. We try to understand it Mm. um, in in a historical 
model. And sometimes that's appreciated and sometimes it isn't, but we do it anyway. Um, because it's, um, to me, it's what gives the work, uh, a kind of life again, beyond, uh, beyond simply, um, the job at hand. I'm curious kind of your thoughts on how both the design discourse and even design education and how we teach design has changed over your career. And we've spent a lot of this conversation, you know, kind of talking around modernism, postmodernism. And I think in many ways, we're still living in that shadow, even though we've also moved past it. But there's still this sense of there's like design work and then there's experimental work that I, I still see that sort of paradox. And I'm wondering how you think that has evolved and kind of where we are now in how we talk about graphic design. If I think about what happened, um, uh, well, let's just say from the late 80s and the early 90s, (laughs) to me, the big big marker is uh, macromedia director. Like, Mm. that's the big divider. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Which I think is 1994. When, when suddenly, you know, motion turns into a thing you can do with ease mm-hmm. at a computer, that that starts really, really changing um, the way that uh, people had to respond to, to teaching design. But, um, but up to that point, you know, I think the thing that's so interesting, now looking more and more essentially historical about that sort of decade, um, like, you know, mid eighties to mid nineties is, um, is the kind of focus on, uh, design as a language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, the best of it is kind of breaking up that formalistic, uh, the, the kind of obsession with, with form as, um, as there being essentially a correct form right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that instead you have a diversification of the idea of different languages, different audiences. Um, You know, it's funny. I think a lot of that work has been buried. Um, I think a lot of the critiques now of graphic design education, especially around a kind of, you know, the, the languages around Mm, even decolonizing or, you know, um, moving away from capitalism or all that. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you look back, that stuff was all, I'm not saying it was effectively settled in the nineties. I'm saying it was raised. Right. Exactly. Um, You know, that it's all there. And then it got, um, basically I would say plowed under, by the technology uh, juggernaut, the fact that that starts the phase when everybody has to learn how to design differently. That's interesting. And, um, you know, and so it kind of got run over. And, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a really (laughs) somebody's uh, PhD (laughs) on graphic design in the 90s uh, would be quite interesting because... You know, I remember going to, um, well, I was going to Holland and to London in the mid-90s a lot because I had this kind of part-time teaching gig at the Jan van Eyck. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, that was when I started seeing, you know, the revival of Helvetica and the revival of modernism. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, damn it. <laughs> What's, yeah. what's this? You know? Yeah. And yeah. of course, you know, then the onslaught, the critique that everything about postmodernism was too personal, too blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, but that was running over the kind of critique that postmodernism had brought where there was an attempt to break up the kind of monolith yeah. of modernism. And so, you know, I don't, I don't even have this worked out in my own head but I know that the nineties are when it got all messed up. And so you see, (laughs) like for me, you know, me as an old person to hear the critiques now of graphic design teaching, I'm like, 
yeah, what did happen? Like, where did it all backslide? You know, I think there's a lot more terrible graphic design teaching out there than even I know. <laughs> or there must be. You know, yeah, I mean, this is where yeah. learning the Adobe Creative Suite is deemed an education, I, I guess. I don't know. Right. I mean, no, you're so, that's exactly right. And that's kind of what I was saying where I felt like we're still living in the shadow and that like, we're not saying, we're not calling it modernism versus postmodernism, but it feels like the same thing. And I think you're exactly right that a lot of these questions around, you know, sort of decolonizing around kind of plurality, identity, all, all the things that we're talking about today, using different language, you know, yeah. we can question its effectiveness, but those were kind of the same conversations. That's, I, I think that's actually really well said and, and really articulated. Just one more thing. I think one of the interesting aspects of that were, was perhaps distracting was the translation into form. And then also I would say that kind of fat, you know, another part of the like imaginary PhD uh, paper on the nineties is the, all those arguments around voice and the right. designer's voice and authorship and all that. And so that kind of got, got into it also. And um, you know, so now you've got this much more upfront social critique again. And I think the interesting thing is going to be, does it get a form? Does it stay more effective by not get being granted mm. a form? Like it, if there's no style, <laughs> like, what, you know, like maybe it's better that it doesn't have a style. Maybe that's what keeps it alive. I don't know. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this this question sort of on the inverse. When I had your colleague, uh, Mr. Keedy on the show, mm -hmm. he he made some a, a remark that I think about all the time where he says that graphic design, and I, I'm, su I'm kind of summarizing his, his, his quote to me. So don't, don't hold this against him or, or give him all the credit. Um, <laughs> that graphic design is a 20th century thing that does not really exist anymore. And that, you know, what we call graphic design is actually probably better understood as something else. And then I also interviewed Michael Rock for something else I was working on. And he said something similar. And he said he thinks graphic design sort of kind of ended in 2008 with the launch of the iPhone, where suddenly the, sort of the tools of design were in everybody's pocket. And that, you know, now, you know, an Instagram story is also a type of graphic design and that there's some sort of new thing. And I think I, I am buying into this argument. I think there is, there is truth to this. And I don't think, you know, design education has fully kind of reconciled this idea that these two, that everybody has access to these tools and that, you know, that opens up a whole other set of questions. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, well, uh, <laughs> Yeah, looking at the mismatched lowercase a's on the metal logo this morning, um, <laughs> I was wondering about whether graphic design was still alive myself. No, I, I actually do think that, um, I mean, this is where uh, my sense of history is, I, I'm actually in agreement with those guys. I do think that graphic design as we know it um, is not really, or as mm -hmm. we knew it, excuse mm -hmm. me, um, is kind of gone. And there are so many um, indicators of that um, that you've already heard. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's uh, some other communicative, you know, visual communication right. that is still operative. However, it is so, um, uh, there are so many kind of different levels, you know, like you're right. Anybody can make an Instagram story. Um, you know, on the other hand, I just watched the Velvet Underground documentary by Todd Haynes. Oh yeah, me too. Oh my I God. I just watched it too. Well, didn't you think that the essentially visual storytelling in that? Oh, yeah. And that documentary is incredible. You know, where's the, it was so good. Where's the continuum? Like, the, you know, that that's graphic design, 
um, yeah. in motion, and so is Instagram yeah. Stories. So where where do you go in there? Um, yeah. You know, I think, and who are the, <laughs> you know, who are the leaders? I mean, I feel like um, I'm the only thing. I guess the only thing that makes me sad <laughs> about the death of graphic design <laughs> is that I feel that it it kind of has collapsed before a, mm. a, a really full understanding of what it what it was was reached. And you know, again, there are all these. You know, there seems to be a pretty intense interest in the history of graphic design now and in the teaching of design history and all that and yet i think you know the real real issue is what is the what parts of its history are relevant to this wholly different practice mm -hmm. um you know when i go to you know when we design a book at green dragon office other than the fact that every all the files are digital we're still bringing a kind of literary, you know, we're, well, right. we're bringing beyond the 20th century. You're still dealing with conventions, you know, set up in the 16th century uh, on how books work. Right. So, so you're dealing with a legacy there, but you know, if you're, if you're a motion designer, isn't mm -hmm. real legacy in the history of film? Mm. Um, you know, what do you got to learn from Paul Rand about that? You know, who mm -hmm. cares? Um, so it's, it's just, you know, and, and again, that, the ubiquitousness of the tools, uh, you know, yeah. creates all sorts of, you know, the sort of diversity of language is now, it doesn't need to be enabled by anybody's theory. It's enabled by the tool itself. Right. Right. And that, and that in some ways, the role of the designer, as we know, historically is the person designing those tools now, right. you know, the, yeah. the, the interfaces and the software and the, you know, the experience there. And so, you know, it's moved from designing the artifact to designing the tools for other people to make also, which then is a whole other history. Right, right. And again, there were always, um, there were always hints of it and, um, mm -hmm. You know, but that's why in the end, okay, to go back to design history, you know, to me, the interesting stuff about it is largely still missing. Like, for instance, uh, you know, it's the social and cultural and political mm. history of design, not the litany of who who did what, yes. when. And, yes. you know, even even clients it's like come on where are the clients <laughs> you know? yeah yeah um yeah. you know it's not enough to just say oh you know here's a designer you've never heard of and she designed this it's like yeah but that's that's cool that's great um and again we're we're fleshing out the idea that all kinds of people made design but i'm also interested in how the design functioned and who paid for it what were mm -hmm. people doing mm -hmm. um you know what were people doing with it and that's the you know where i do see the usefulness of history yeah it's just that yeah. there's a lot of bad history <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh lorraine i could talk about this with you all day long um <laughs> Which I, I will I will not do. So I will ask you my last question, and I'm which is the question. Not naming names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's for us. Uh, yeah, we can do that after we hit record. Yeah, we right, can right. we can do the unedited version. Uh, my last question is the question I used to end all of these. I'm curious uh, what you're reading right now. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I was thinking of my, um, you know, like obviously during the pandemic, I had a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, back to this issue of the context for design, because because my whole interest, you know, not that I've actually written about the mid-century at all for ages now, but my continuing interest in trying to understand uh, actually the American context for modernism um, uh, kind of has, and also actually... Um, working with uh on the hippie modernism project mm -hmm. with andrew blauvelt and 
I started, I, I've got this interest in the mid-century. So like that Louis Manon book that was re, he recently published called The Free World. Yeah. That's kind of a history of Cold War, War culture. I found that really fascinating. And then there's um, uh, another book I read recently was Pamela Lee's book called Think Tank Aesthetics. Oh yeah, I have I haven't read that yet, but I have that book on my shelf. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. As is her she's at Yale now, but her colleague from Stanford, uh, a guy named Fred Turner wrote a really mm-hmm. interesting book called The Democratic Surround. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is about multimedia. Anyway, so that whole like Cold War zone is something I'm super interested in. And then uh, Glenn Adamson's book, I know you've interviewed him, yep. the book on an American history of craft, craft and American yeah. history. I thought that was amazing because even though it's, you know, it, because of his redefinition of craft as work, um, I found that there was a lot to think about as a designer and a, mm-hmm. a, as a maker, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, you know, to uh, to read his, his kind of take, uh, which I think moves the understanding of craft into a much more uh, open-ended um, uh, practice that obviously affects both design and art making. Uh, yeah, I agree. And and Glenn mentioned the Manan Cultural Cold War book when I had him on the show too. Oh, interesting. Uh, as yeah. being very influential in, in his thinking. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, this was so interesting, Lorraine. I'm so glad we get to do this. 